My name is Harley Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premiere pro-Pirates of the Caribbean and pro-John Lithgow podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. Now, today we have watched a movie quite different. On the other side of the law, so to speak, we have watched the action film from 2003, SWAT, starring Colin Farrell and a young Jeremy Renner. I I think it's also written by David Ayer. Yeah, it is. He's a co-writer on it. Which makes a lot of sense, having seen it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But before we get into that, we will talk about what we've seen within the week. We all have seen a movie in cinemas. We didn't watch it at the same time, but we've all seen it. Mm -hmm. We've seen The Suicide Squad, the new DC superhero movie directed by James Gunn. It is based on the eponymous comics team created by Robert Kinnear and Ross Andrew. I don't know if you call it a sequel to the 2016 Suicide Squad. It's sort of just... I would. A continuation. It's sort of remixing a lot of the yeah. the different characters and ideas and things. There's a lot of old and new faces here. Primarily, you've got Harley Quinn, played by Margot Robbie. Rick Flagg, played by Joel Kinnaman. Bloodsport, played by Idris Elba. Peacemaker, played by John Cena. And King Shark, a gigantic anthropomorphic CGI shark voiced by Sylvester Stallone. And they are all sent by Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis, on a new mission to infiltrate the overthrown South American country of Corto Maltese, which is now under a military dictatorship, and to find the secret weapon that they have been keeping in a lab somewhere. So it's been a while since we've done one of these that we've all seen in the what we've been watching. So why don't we just all give really, you know, brief overview thoughts of, of what we thought of this. What, what about you guys? What, what do you think, John? Why don't you start off? I really enjoyed this. I, I enjoyed its style. I enjoyed the fact that it's just James Gunn let loose. The characters are really where it's at, though. There's a lot of really funny interactions between the members of the squad and even the squad and other people. You've got everything to do with Polka Dot Man, which is just great. King Shark is just adorable. I love him. Every time he opens his mouth, it's just incredible. Weasel is great. It's a really fun time. I really dug this as someone who's not so much into the Suicide Squad comics, but has read my fair share. This is a lot closer to what those are like. This is a much more accurate depiction than when we saw Suicide Squad back in 2016. Um, I don't know, Gunn seems to have gotten a handle on the tone a lot better. These are meant to be absurd. The Suicide Squad is a group of supervillains who have been forced into becoming a team by the American government because they're expendable. And this movie makes no bones about showing you exactly how expendable they are. James Gunn brings in a lot of his own cast that he likes working with. You've got Michael Rooker here, Sylvester Stallone, of course. I still think it's such a mistake that it was Sylvester Stallone. I think it should have been Dave Bautista. Well, James Gunn has been on record as saying that Sylvester Stallone was the person he wanted to voice King Shark, but he went through at least four different voice actors having them record all of the lines and... It just didn't work for him. So he went and he asked Sylvester Stallone because they're friends. And Stallone said, yeah, I'll do it. There's a lot of DC characters in here. Most of them B to D list. Yeah. You got the 
feral, disgusting weasel played by Sean Gunn. I love him so much. <laughs> yeah. I love Weasel. I want a Weasel standalone movie. <laughs> <laughs> Team him up with Peacemaker in the HBO Max series. Yeah. Buddy Cop. That part where he's in the helicopter and they're about to jump into the water. Rick Flag says, prepare to jump. And Weasel, because he's just a giant weasel man, he's strapped in, but he's sort of like jumping in place <laughs> as if to prepare himself. He's raring to go. <laughs> I like this. It was sillier and better made than the first Suicide Squad movie. But I got to admit, I was kind of expecting more, given all of the buzz surrounding it, given all of the... You know, the, the, the positive feeling from James Gunn's involvement. And yes, from James Gunn's involvement, I was expecting a little more than this. It's not as good as either of his Guardians of the Galaxy movies, I don't think. It has more humour. It's got a lot more violence. It's, you know, it's <laughs> R-rated in America, MA here. It actually got an R rating in Australia to begin with before Warner Brothers appealed it and it got lowered to an MA, but... I think that's fair. MA is fair. Yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't see anything in this movie that... It was honestly less violent than I anticipated. I think, if I had to guess, I think the one shot that pushed it into R originally was the shot with King Shark and the head. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. I can see that. Hmm. I might have the dubious honour of being the person on the podcast who recognized every single character from the comic books. <laughs> I recognized all of them. I recognized people like Nathan Fillion as TDK, the detachable kid, whose name in the comics is not the detachable kid. In fact, his name is Armful Off Boy. <laughs> See, the characters are the best part, and I would have loved to have more of those. I'm not going to reveal who the main squad is, because that's clearly a spoiler. You know, they have a bunch of... a very large Suicide Squad to begin with, so that they can kill off a bunch of them. Some of them played by very famous actors, and, you know, that's kind of part of the joke of it all. But I I think that in a lot of cases, they kill off people they shouldn't have killed off. And I would have liked to see some of them carried through the rest of the movie. I think there's a much more interesting movie, a much funnier movie, with a few of them still in play for a lot longer. Mm. I would have ditched Bloodsport and Ratcatcher before I ditched a bunch of them. Huh. I actually quite liked Bloodsport and Ratcatcher. Bloodsport's just, like, the most boring one, though. Like, he's just a, a normal, sensible person, and that's <laughs> kind of not what I'm looking for from this. I did, like his sort of power set, the suit that turns into the weapons, but, like, Peacemaker, played by John Cena here, he's one of the stronger performances, yeah. I find. His performance in this is certainly stronger than his performance in F9. You can see how how Warner Brothers executives and James Gunn would look at the, the cut of The Suicide Squad, The Dailies, whatever, and be like, yeah, let's make an HBO Max TV show with this yeah. guy. And he's got this absurd costume... It's like this red, tight, sort of, like, shirt. Yeah. And these, like, white pants with this dumb-looking silver helmet. Mm. And he's just such an incredible character, because his whole philosophy is peace at any cost. He doesn't care how many men, women, and children he has to kill to get it. And Viola Davis. And she gets, like, some pretty intense yelling stuff to do in this. Like, she... Yeah. Yeah. James Gunn writes for her some better scenes than she ever got in in the first Suicide Squad. Viola Davis as Amanda Waller is, like, always a win. Yeah. 
one of the best castings in a superhero property. I would go so far as to say it is the best casting in the entirety of the DCEU. She has it. She she nailed it in the first appearance and just keeps on nailing it from here. I love David Dasmalchen as Polka Dot Man. Mm-hmm. He is suitably pathetic. <laughs> and they change his powers ever so slightly. But in such a good way, though. But in such a good way that, like, ramps up how sad the guy <laughs> is. Yeah. See, I, that's what I want. I wanted a whole squad of Polka Dot Men. I didn't want... <laughs> I didn't want, you know, oh, the guy that uses the gun and, you know, the... the... You didn't want anyone hyper-competent. Exactly. You wanted the dropkicks. Yeah. Okay, who would your dream cast of a Suicide Squad be? Oh, well, let's start off and just say that none of these should be interpreted as spoilers because some of these people survive into the film and then some of them don't. So just because I'm listing them here should not be should not be taken as evidence that they die early on in the movie. Are we taking people just from this you movie can, and the first one? You can take them from the other one as well, if you like. Well, I'm not going to. I'm just going to stick with this movie. But I would have had Peacemaker in there, Harley Quinn in there. I think you need Rick Flagg because of his, you, definitely. you know, leader, leader He's status. He's straight man. King Shark, Polka Dot, but then on top of that... Weasel. Yeah, yeah, yes, I want Weasel in there, and I want the detachable um man. The detachable kid. Yeah. I would get Savon, because he's got, like, a very interesting energy. He's played by Michael Rooker, and I just like seeing Michael Rooker in things. Yeah, I think Ratcatcher 2 is necessary, though, because Ratcatcher 2 provides the heart and meaning behind the story. And yo, folks... This thing goes batshit. Yes, it's already been in the trailers, but the introduction of the giant alien starfish. Styro the Conqueror. Yes, that is... I mean, for the most part, I'm not liking the narrative. I think it's really generic in um, in its yeah. whole, like, infiltrating this dictatorship. And I, I mean, the human villains are just, like, incredibly bland. But it is all made up for when we get to the giant alien starfish who's launching these face-hugging smaller starfish that turn its victims into something out of a particularly dodgy uh, 70s Doctor Who episode. Speaking of Doctor Who, you have Peter Capaldi as the thinker yeah. who's involved with the Star of the Conqueror stuff. I do think that there's a lot of really good supporting actors in here, and some of them, like mm. Peter Capaldi, get... Some really good stuff to do. His monologue in Jotunheim is wonderful. Yeah. But some of them, in fact most of them, are wasted entirely. There is one actor whose presence in the film has been, you know, known for a long time and he has been promoted as being part of the cast since, you know, it was started. But he only appears in the briefest of flashbacks and he has a single line in the whole thing. And I'm just like, why bother? You know? Mm. Why bother to get him? He's a good choice for the character. Sure. You would think that he'd have a bigger role to play. And it goes to a lot of the people that they kill off early on as well, that I I think that a lot of them should have had... I wanted more of them. Some people you just don't get much out of before they get wiped off the face of the planet. And uh, John Murphy, the, the John Murphy score, I quite enjoyed as well. Some of it, particularly the action parts, are a little bit... They're a bit samey. To me, they're a bit samey. They're a bit generic. But there are some really pretty things here. King Shark and the Clyrax is a particularly lovely little piece of music.
ratism from near the end of the movie is also really good. It's got a very punk sensibility. It's carrying on the musical texture of Birds of Prey. Ultimately, I would like for the next Suicide Squad movie, if they do do one, to have a different director again. You know, the Suicide Squad is like the perfect vehicle for getting in directors who have their own sort of visions for things and have their own sort of styles. Get a different director, get a different team. I would get Taika Waititi to do a Suicide Squad movie because he's got the sense of humor for it. The Suicide Squad is like the ultimate vehicle for having each movie be like this different thing. Yeah. We are going a bit long on this, but I'm, I'm not sure. I kind of... And James Gunn as well. I kind of want to see what they do with... I I get the appeal of playing in these very famous sandboxes, but Taika Waititi, James Gunn, you know, I kind of want to see what's in their head, you know? Sure. I, I, I want to see, like, just pure, unadulterated James Gunn and Taika Waititi. Yeah. What, what... Like Slither and Super. Yeah, or, or with Taika Waititi, Jojo Rabbit, you know? It's... What things are living in their heads? I want them to have control over their stories, you know? Yeah. And not be... I mean, isn't the story here that James Gunn was instructed that his only thing was, like, he had to put Harley Quinn in it? No, I think he wanted to put her in it. I might have misread that somewhere, but... I think he wanted to work with... I think the main thing was he wanted Superman as the main bad guy, Uh, but he was told no. See, there you go. Like, I would kind of want to just know what crazy chances and directions yeah. that he would go in without you know the the all-powerful franchise tm you know keeping that from happening but go back to the trauma movies that he wrote i mean taika Waititi's doing thor and then he's moving on to star wars and you know i'm excited for those i'm going to be really interested to see those movies a star wars movie from taika Waititi. what does that look like but they're not going to be as original yeah. as his independent work, like what we do in the shadows. Yeah, I want to know what I want to see his stuff, the Taika Waititi brand, yeah. unadulterated. Because you know we'll get Star Wars movies and we'll get Marvel movies, but if Taika Waititi is and James Gunn are, are caught up in these big franchises for the next twenty, thirty years, how many cool original things are we going to miss out on? That, anyways, any, anything else to add? No, just I really liked it. I dug it a lot. Well, I also saw three other movies in the cinemas uh, this week. I saw The Ice Road. It's a thriller directed by Jonathan Hensley, and in it, Liam Neeson fights a frozen lake. <laughs> nice. That is that is what all of these movies are now. That's Liam Neeson ever since Taken. It's like, what can we have Liam Neeson fight? Liam Neeson fighting wolves. Liam Neeson fights a wolf. Liam Neeson fights human traffickers. Liam Neeson fights the Nixon administration. <laughs> Liam Neeson fights a child's grief. Mm. Liam Neeson fights his wife's infidelity. Yeah. But anyways, the the main thing here is that there is a mine cave-in up in Canada, and they desperately need equipment to basically open it up again and get the methane out before all of the miners who are trapped inside die. And so Mike McCann, played by Liam Neeson, along with his brother, enlist in a trucker team that are going to risk the ice roads uh, in April, which is, you know, getting towards the very end of the cold season in America. And the ice roads are these giant frozen lakes and, and just like fields and fields of, of just ice stretching off into the, into the distance that is used to transport machinery and supplies and things during the winter. But by April, it's melting and the ice is very thin. And so it's a real risk. But along the way, they also find out they have to confront a conspiracy. That apparently the mine cave-in might not have been as unexpected as initially thought, 
and there might be a cover-up going on. This is just ridiculous and not always in a good way. It's a perfectly good idea. I mean, Liam Neeson fighting a frozen lake, I like that. But they kind of undermine it with all of the extra crap that they throw around. I mean, yeah. I was kind of just looking for... You ever seen The Day After Tomorrow? Yep. You know how Dennis Quaid is, like, travelling across the the frozen tundra to save Jake Gyllenhaal, and there's that whole scene where, you know, it's just a disaster movie and this this frozen thing, and they, yep. like, fall through the ice and they lose people. and like, That's what I wanted from this, really. But instead, it's adding all of this espionage crap in. And it's terribly written. It's just awfully written. One of the opening scenes just before the mine collapses is Holt McElhaney is playing a safety supervisor in the mine. And he goes to one of the methane detectors and it's run out of batteries, so it's down. And he chews the guy in charge of it out. And he says, why is your methane detector not working? And the guy says, oh, no, it's probably run out of batteries. And Holt McElhaney says... This detects methane. It must stay on. Like, it's that kind of, like, really awful dialogue. Just really blunt trying to get the point across. Yeah. I mean, the ice road is cool, and there are some okay set pieces on it, but the action's just not good enough, and it's 20 minutes too long. I mean, they get off the ice road at the end, and there's still, like, 20, 25 minutes of movie left. Aww. And it's just, like, too many endings. It's too many complications on complications. Didn't didn't need it. it. And it plays with ideas that it's not smart enough for. It plays with, like, oh, sort of... It makes a weird turn where it tries to make a point about racism, and it feels, like, really at odds, and the movie is just not equipped. It doesn't have the tools to make this, this point. And the way that it is made... Actually, it seems not to understand the imagery that it's playing with. Right. Mm. Yikes. Yeah. But, I mean, Liam Neeson's just playing Liam Neeson, and that's fine. I mean, he's always Irish in all of these movies. I mean, it doesn't matter his job. He can be, be an American trucker. He can be an American CIA agent. It's, he's, he's Irish. He's, he can be a ninja in the mountains. He can be a Jedi in space. Yeah. He can be... Mark Felt, a historical figure who helped bring down the Nixon administration and was, in real life, no way Irish. He's <laughs> Irish when Liam Neeson's playing him. Yeah. I love the idea of Liam Neeson meeting this real guy, and the guy's like... Mark Felt is long dead, but yeah. <laughs> the guy just saying, you know, I, I, I'm not Irish, and Liam Neeson's saying, of course you are. You are now. Lawrence Fishburne and Matt McCoy are also pretty good in, in supporting performances. It's always cool to see Fishburne. Yeah, it's just kind of a meathead movie. Yeah. It's okay, but yeah. I saw Free Guy. It is a science fiction action movie directed by Sean Levy. And in it, we focus on Guy, played by Ryan Reynolds. And he is a non-player character in an MMO. But one day, he meets a player character, Millie, played by Jodie Comer, both in the real world and in the game. They sort of give her the chance to like use her natural British accent when she's her avatar in the game and then when she's in the real world she's an American. That's funny. He is inspired by meeting Millie and falls instantly in love with her and decides that he actually doesn't have to follow his AI routine anymore and, and can can make his own destiny and he gets drawn into this strange lawsuit plot. Millie is suing the CEO of the company that made the game, Antoine, played by Taika Waititi and she's suing him because he's stolen her code to make the game. And so Guy is sort of drawn into that as her, like, man on the inside, basically. But this is a really fun, funny, and pleasant movie. The The idea of Free City, which is this city that it, it all takes place in, is a really fun idea. It's well-realised. It has a lot of good visual gags about 
the incongruity of player characters as compared to NPC characters, their movements, their actions. There's a lot of like cool background gags of, of just scenes, but in the background, there's a player character doing just the most, the, the stupidest, like pointlessly violent or crude shit in the background that's never drawn attention to, but it's fun. The real world stuff is also really interesting as well. Funnily enough, like I was never, I was never like, oh, let's just get back in, into the, the simulation. I was, I was just as invested in what was going on in the real world. And that's really thanks to Jodie Comer and also to, Joe Keery, who has a, a supporting role in that portion of the film as well. Antoine's not a great villain, though. It's not Watiti's fault. It's the way that he's been written. But the core relationship here between Guy and Millie is is really the fun bit. Guy is just sort of this inspired idiot. Like, he's a real fool. He doesn't understand the world because he's venturing off the scripted path for the very first time. And so he, he doesn't understand anything outside of his already experienced existence. Mm. So there's a real, like, kind of peppy naivete that almost approaches psychopathy at points. Like, he's... With the trailers, when I've watched them, I've kind of always compared this to the Lego movie. Mm. The first one, Guy is Emmett. I can see that. I can see that a little bit. It's not a complete one-to-one, of course. No. The peppy, chipper guy going off script for the first time, sort of. It is about finding yourself. It's, It's also, in that sense, very similar to the Emoji movie. Jesus, Sean. It doesn't have Patrick Stewart as a talking turd, so... Meet Poop. It's showtime. You are smooth. Just doing my duty. (laughs) What? He's full of himself. (laughs) We're We're number number two. two. We're number two. The Emoji Movie. These lights! I'm melting in here! This is such a loaded... Uh... No, go ahead. Finish that sentence. Can it really be? I want to put it out there. I've never seen the Emoji movie. <laughs> I mean, it's about finding yourself. It's about not being defined by what other people think of you. And that's really going into, you know, Guy's character arc is he decides that he's going to choose his own path, that he doesn't have to be confined by his programming. It's an AI awakening. Yes. That's what it is. And that he kind of just inspires the other NPCs around him to break from their programming as well, and it becomes sort of like a weird Spartacus kind of thing by the end of it. And it's very, very funny. It's really well written. There are a ton of very clever cameos. They'll just be voices, like some of the player characters that you see running around in the world. I mean, they have masks on and you can't see their faces, but you hear the voice, you're like, is that that person? Yeah, it is. It is. And there's just a, a lot of those, including one of the most clever and surprising cameos I've seen in a, in a while. Reynolds is very good, and Joe Keery, as I mentioned, is very good, but, but Coma is the standout here. She's just fantastic. And she plays the difference between, you know, her avatar in the world who understands the world and runs it like clockwork because it's all programmed and she, you know, her code was used to program it. It's a controlled environment. And so she's really confident in there. But once she gets out into the real world, she's much more vulnerable. And I think that Coma plays it brilliantly. It shows her range. I I enjoyed that part of it a lot. Christopher Beck's score is wonderful. There's a really creative and interesting use of Mariah Carey's fantasy that Christopher Beck incorporates that into his instrumental score towards the end in a really fun and interesting way. And the the effects are just fantastic. It looks brilliant. They've had the time. Mm. This is one of the carryover things from Disney buying 
Fox. I'm not sure because there's a use of Disney IP in it that seems to suggest that it was made after that. I think it was in pre-production yeah. when, when it happened. Lastly, for the stuff I saw in the movies, Reminiscence is a science fiction noir film directed by Lisa Joy, and it's set in the future. An undetermined date in the future, they never give it a year, but climate change has become a real problem. It's, it's set in Miami, where it's gotten so hot that the city has become nocturnal. People come out during the night and go to sleep during the day because the sun is just so, so hot. The oceans have risen. The outer outskirts, the, the places closer to the sea, are now Venice-like canals, and the only thing stopping the water from just flooding into the further parts of the city are seawalls, but even those are starting to be overtaken. And because of how shitty the world is, people have sort of retreated into memories and these machines that allow a person to relive a memory of their choosing, a memory that is really important to them and pleasant to them. And Nick Bannister, played by Hugh Jackman, runs one of these places that performs this service. But one day he meets a client, May, played by Rebecca Ferguson, and they start a relationship, but then one day she just disappears. And as he investigates her disappearance, he realises that maybe he never knew the real her at all. And so he starts looking for clues as to what happened in the various memories, both his own and other people's that he comes across. This is a very much a private investigator, gumshoe sort of thing. It's futuristic Humphrey Bogart. It mm. really is that. I mean, right down to the, the narration. You've got Hugh Jackman doing the very traditional PI narration, like, Oh, I have missed that. You know, then she walked in. You know, like that kind of thing. Is it in his Aussie accent? No, he's American. He's not too bad with an American accent. No, he's not. The world building is just fantastic. This sort of pre-apocalyptic setup that's going on here. Everyone kind of just knows that this is only going to get worse and there's just this kind of morose feeling of, well, shit. But it also, you know, focuses in on wealth disparity and the corruption that has accumulated as a result of this, that, you know, nations have fallen and wars have started over resources and the very wealthy have bought up all of the dry land and built up their own seawalls to protect their own property, but that in turn has redirected the water into the poorer neighbourhoods. And there's just this, like, simmering class resentment underpinning the whole thing in a really interesting way. And the effects creating this world are just brilliant. And the mystery's good too. I mean, it, it takes us around the world. We get to see a lot of different parts of it. And it reveals a lot of information about the history of the place, but not in exposition where someone sits down and tells us, but, like, we just see the reality of it and we get snatches of information in casual dialogue that gradually build a picture as to what has happened and how this whole place works. The Nick and May relationship is a little underdone. I don't think it gets the focus at the beginning that it needs to to really sell Jackson's obsession when she disappears. But Jackson, his performance sells that obsession. He's quite good in this. Tandy Newton as his employee, an old war buddy who is trying to help him out. She's fantastic. But I will say that it, its adherence to noir archetypes rob it of some of the surprises that it could otherwise have had. It's pretty clear to anyone who's familiar with these old noir archetypes how this is going to go, because it really is just those very old traditional stories mapped onto this futuristic post-climate change setting. It has a great ending, though, an ending that that doesn't bother to try and be happy, that is really bittersweet 
and kind of brutal in the way that it concludes. I will say it maybe goes on for maybe a minute and a half too long where Joy makes the mistake. She's the writer as well. She makes the mistake of stopping and having a character just explain the point of the movie to us. And I think that there was a perfect moment to stop it just before that. But it really is an excellent feature debut for her. She is a collaborator with Jonathan Nolan. She's a producer on a lot of his TV show work. And she's written and directed episodes of Westworld. Yes, that's her only prior directing credit has been episodes of Westworld. This is her feature debut. And it's really, really impressive. She just comes up with some really wonderful images here. I look forward to seeing what she does going forward. At home, I finished off the Pirates of the Caribbean series, starting with Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. It is a fantasy adventure directed by Rob Marshall. Jack Sparrow, a returning Johnny Depp, bumbles his way into a into the hunt for the Fountain of Youth that is being conducted by Blackbeard, played by Ian McShane. He also runs into his old flame Angelica, played by Penelope Cruz, who happens to be Blackbeard's daughter, and that creates problems. But they are all being pursued by Barbosa, played by a returning Jeffrey Rush, who is now a privateer in the employ of the Crown, but in reality wants revenge on Blackbeard for a past slight. This is a victim of the previous movie's finality. Mm. They wrapped it up so well at the end of that movie, and here they have to pretend that there's a point to come back when there isn't. <laughs> it is based on... The Tim Powers novel on Stranger Tides, which is not a Pirates of the Caribbean novel or anything. It's it's the plot and the general structure of it lifted. Uh, loosely lifted, but enough that they bought the rights to it and he's credited as writing the novel that it's based on. I think the closest parallel here is to Dead Man's Chest in terms of the original trilogy. Sort of the quest to find the mythical object. And not only that, but the dueling quests. You know, people trying to get there before each other and that part of it. But nothing here is as fresh or exciting as it could be or should be. The relationship between Angelica and Jack is very poorly done. It goes nowhere as well. And I'm just not sure how good of an idea bringing the Empire in so close is. I'm not sure I like that we start in London. I'm not sure I like that the, the reach of the British Empire is so profound in this because... Sort of the point of these Pirates of the Caribbean movies have been, you know, the holdouts against civilization, for lack of a better term. You know, these pirates who will do anything to resist the last encroachments of colonialism, the, the, the last yeah. bit of the edges of the maps being filled in. And, and I feel that by having the Empire and its power dominate so much of this, I think we, we lose that. But the Jack and Barbosa stuff is the best stuff. I mean, I mentioned before that it's really important to have someone to counteract Jack, to act as a, a counterbalance to him. And Barbosa, I think, fulfills that function really well. I mean, that it was the right instinct, and they should have leaned into it more. The series should have been Jack and Barbosa, odd couple pirates, as they go mm. on adventures with each other. Yeah, definitely. But there are some neat elements here. I do really like the stuff with the mermaids. I, I like the subplot between the mermaid and the priest. I know that's a controversial... I don't. I know, yeah, I was going to say, I know that's a controversial opinion, but I do like it and I like the ambiguity with which it concludes. Oh, uh, yeah, I like the ambiguity, but the part where she comes in clutch at the end of the movie, I'm like, why? <laughs> why would she do that? Yeah. that? It doesn't make any sense. And I, I don't feel a thing for the missionary guy. I don't feel a thing for him. Why should I care? I do really like Blackbeard, though. Oh, Blackbeard is awesome. I watched this this week because I just, I felt like 
continuing to dip my toes into this world. See, that's interesting, because you guys seemed a little bit cold on Blackbeard last week. It's because it had been a long time. Mm. I still am, though. I like him a lot in this. He's got control over his ship in so many ways. He can use his sword to control it. Yeah. Just his mere presence just frightens the living shit out of people. Look, I love seeing Ian McShane and stuff. Don't get me wrong. He's just pure evil in this. But what I like the most about Pirates of the Caribbean and its villains are how they're not just people. They're like cursed zombies or Uh, fish people. I kind of like that he's just normal, though. Like, he doesn't need to be an undead pirate. He doesn't need to be a Cthulhu monster from the deep. He's just... Blackbeard, and that's all that he needs to be. Like, I love that scene where the missionary, like, says to him something like, how can you do this? And he just turns around and says, I'm a bad man. <laughs> like, I, I think mm. that's just a really great line. I, 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 And I think he works well with Jack Sparrow. Like, he never loses it. He never gets as frustrated or as irritated. He never lets Jack take control. Take control, yeah. Mm. Like, the times when Jack's sort of flitting around his cabin and... Blackbeard's just making a voodoo doll of him and burns its head, and it really puts Jack in his place. I do like, however, that Blackbeard's general demeanor to Jack is just one of... (sighs) Means to an end. You're not impressing me. We just need to get this done. (laughs) Yeah. This is inexplicably the most expensive film ever made, still. both It doesn't show. Both adjusted and unadjusted for inflation. It's weird. Yes, it costs... $379 $379 million. Because <laughs> I, I watched the whole thing. Harley came in in the last half, and I pointed at specific shots of, say, Jack Sparrow running through the woods or whatever, running through the jungle, and I turned to Harley and I said, this is the most expensive movie ever made. Ever. And he said, really? I can't believe it because the way that... Gore Verbinski shoots things, particularly Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, they feel larger scale. They feel more expensive. Yeah. Rob Marshall, an excellent director. We talked about Chicago and we all really love that, but he was clearly out of his element here. I mean, that's the only, like, gigantic blockbuster thing that he's ever done. And I think clearly it's not to his strong suits musical theater is his wheelhouse with the fact that he puts diegetic music into the movie it continues that really nice thematic thing of the music being incredibly important to the narratives of these movies but i mean the hans zimmer score is pretty good there's some good stuff here Anyways, if anyone wants to check it out, it's available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. Finally, for the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. I rewatched some scenes, mate. God. It's directed by Joachim Running and Espen Sandberg. Follows Will and Elizabeth's son, Henry, played by Brenton Thwaites. He's out to break the curse on his father, who is still the captain of Flying Dutchman. And to do it, he needs the trident of Poseidon, this, this mythical MacGuffin. And uh, he meets a washed-up Jack Sparrow, as as well as a clever scientist woman, Karina, played by Caius Scodelario. And they are pursued in their hunt by ghost pirates. Captain Salazar leads them, played by Javier Bardem. He's out to avenge his, basically, I suppose, death at the hands of Jack from years earlier. This is just trying way too hard. It's trying way, way too hard. The screenwriters have changed here. You can tell. Yes, Terry Rossio gets a co-story credit. 
Ted Elliott is gone completely, but the the other person who gets a co-story credit, Jeff Nathanson, is the sole writer for the actual script. And my God, you can tell that it's not the same person who is writing this dialogue. It is really poorly written. It has none of the elegance or the idiosyncratic patter of those previous Pirates movies. Even on Stranger Tides, it's so had yes, like it the it sounded vibe. the same. It sounded yeah. the same. And this doesn't. People act out of character. Everyone just sounds wrong. Apparently, Rossio had written a full script that ended up being like shot down by Disney and they moved on to this instead or by the the people involved in the the producers or whatever. But Inexplicably. Yeah. It gives me comfort that I believe he and Elliot are back for the next one. But yeah, this was a real misstep. I mean, Jack Sparrow has just been turned into a self-parody. He is written as an idiot when he is not. He's an absolute moron in this movie. For the first time, he is pathetic. And Mm. Jack Sparrow is strange, but he is not stupid and he is not pathetic. And that's what this movie gets really, really wrong. Like we talked about in the episode, Jack Sparrow's strangeness is, yes, a part of his personality, but is as much a performance as it is a part of his personality. I mean, it's part of him being Keith Richards' son, I think. Like, looking at Dad in three, like, that's the the upbringing. (laughs) Yeah, you see at the beginning of On Stranger Tides, the whole thing with him and King George. Before King George gets there, he's setting up his escape. Yeah. You're, you're seeing his process. And the, the plot just doesn't do the legwork. Why are they ghosts? Why did they get cursed when they sailed into that cave and died? What I do like about it is the design of the ship. How it sort of like rears up. Oh yeah, and- that's... Yeah. Clearly whoever thought that up had read Mortal Engines by Philip Reeves, but... No, I know, but it's like, it's a cool idea to have it be It's a good visual. But it it chucks in all these cheap character connections with no payoff. You know the one that I'm talking about. I know the one you're talking about. It's so unnecessary. And it has such, it leads to such an underwhelming handling of a legacy character. That, mm. that that's the yeah. final moment for that character is really disappointing. I also find, like, the general plot of trying to undo Will's sacrifice to be really insulting. Yeah. I, I think... And, and, you know, what the hell is Poseidon's trident? It's just a MacGuffin. There's no mythology mm. to it at all. How does it work? Why does it work? You know, all of this stuff. What's the point Did of it? Did Poseidon exist? Like, I mean, with everything with Calypso, we meet Calypso. Yeah. We meet Davy Jones. And for me, Salazar is just the worst villain in the whole thing. He's too self-consciously weird. Like, they're trying to recreate Davy Jones, but they're trying too hard. Like I said, this movie tries way too hard. He's just kind of silly and irritating. Like His design's cool, though. His design's cool, but the way that they insist on having Bardem you know, do these strange little mumbles and grunts and weird little mumbling to himself, like, oh, I hate Jack Sparrow, I hate Jack Sparrow, oh, I'm going to get Jack Sparrow, you know, that that kind of stuff that he does under his breath. It's pointless as well, because we see him in flashbacks when he was still human, and he didn't behave like that at all. And for some reason, his personality has changed entirely once he became cursed, even though the personality of the rest of his crew didn't change at all. Javier Bardem is a good actor, and he can do... Mm strange and sinister very well he did it in skyfall but the difference is that skyfall had point yeah this was also when they were trying to put brenton thwaites in big budget movies yeah i actually think he's really effective as the child of orlando bloom i can buy that 
Oh, absolutely. I can see that. I can that. buy that he's a turner. But it's it's this and Gods of Egypt, which really turned me sour on him before I saw him in Titans. And then you've got some of his more recent stuff like Ghosts of War. Yeah. The smaller budget stuff is where he has his best. He had the misfortune of having his big blockbuster attempts be in bad movies. Yeah. 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 I think Scodelario doesn't come off as well as he does. He's saddled with some of the worst dialogue, and it very much plays like the male writer trying to write a strong female character and ending up with a straw man instead. They're trying to recapture the fire of Elizabeth. Yes, but... And it's not... Yes, they. but instead, whereas they wrote Elizabeth as being realistically fierce and iconoclastic within the time period that the movie is set. Nathanson instead just writes Karina as a modern woman in the 1700s. Yeah. And that's where the problem comes in. Also, the CGI and the effects in this movie have taken a dive. See, I actually disagree. I thought they all looked pretty good. I like how the ghosts, there's like parts of them missing it looks like they're underwater well i think you can certainly see that that it is more cgi that there is a lot less practical mm, mm. young johnny depp is a little creepy but i think for the most part it works <laughs> there are just a few moments there are a few moments there where just something doesn't move in the way that your brain expects it to and all of a sudden you're just like ah computer monster computer monster i, I was talking more the ghost shark scene oh uh, yeah well, the ghost sharks, just as I idea, is pretty stupid. Why does he have ghost sharks? Why do they obey his command? Why does the figurehead of his ship come to life at the end? What's the point of any of it? I do like the idea of them running on the surface of the water. Yeah. That's a dope idea. I mean, the movie is just full of cool ideas. It's just the execution that are the problem. You know what I hate? What it's a scene I hate is the shoehorning in of Paul McCartney. Like, the movie just stops so that Paul McCartney can be in it. and It really does. I mean, say what you want about Keith Richards being in the others. There's a point they to it. They found the right role for him, yeah. They are pretending that Paul McCartney is in any way the same kind of rock star as Keith Richards He's is. not! Exactly. Like, as if he has, by making him Jack Sparrow's uncle, they're sort of, like, trying to connect him to the spirit of Jack Sparrow. No, it's Paul McCartney. It's Paul McCartney. He's a soft boy. There are worse movies, but there are no worse Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anyone still wants to check it out. Next up, Johnny English. Yeah, boy. It's a spy comedy directed by Peter Howitt. It follows Johnny English. Rowan Atkinson plays him. He is an incompetent MI7 agent, and he was the only survivor of an attack that killed all of the other more competent agents because he was working security in the car park. So he is the only option to foil the unlikely scheme of Pascal Sauvage, played by John Malkovich, to take the throne of England. <laughs> this is very silly fun. It's, I, I find it strangely pitched, though. There's plenty of adult humour here, but it's clearly intended for children as well. Mm. Really, it's just a showcase for Atkinson, and he's magnificent. Oh, absolutely. All of the Johnny English movies are. He is the slapstick king. I finished off this whole trilogy, like, thinking... Wow, I want to see Rowan Atkinson in more stuff, you know? Yeah, it's it's all three of these movies are really just threadbare plots in order to get to the set pieces. Mm. It's Spy Mr. Bean. It's yeah. Spy Mr. Bean, yeah. Atkinson has a Netflix series coming out called Man vs. Bee, where he plays a man who house sits for a friend but finds an irritating bee in the house and they go to war because he can't get rid of it. 
Awesome. Outstanding. Johnny English is just delusional. He thinks he's James Bond. And, like, his whole approach to being a spy is an improv approach. He just yes-ands everything. Yeah, yeah, he does. That is a good point. I like the really dry and absurdist humour. I love how he... Like, there's the really, like, silly stuff where he accidentally, like, anesthetizes the secretary at his boss's work the first time he goes in for a meeting. But then there's, like, the extra kind of cruel twist of the knife, like, when she rolls past in a wheelchair later on, catches sight of him and just looks horrified as she recognises the man who crippled her. Like, mm. there's some moments like that, that that... Isn't there the part where he gets the building wrong? Yeah. And he goes into a hospital instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do think there are there are some significant misses, though. I do think it goes too juvenile at times. All of the feces jokes I could have done without. I'm not a fan of Savage as the villain. Malkovich is entirely miscast. He is he is playing a cartoon a cartoon character that doesn't work. I just like how he goes off at the end. Yeah, it's not a bad idea to have a cartoon character, but I think that Malkovich is the wrong person to play it. It's the wrong tone. The movie also really despises the French. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot. For no good reason. I mean it's Britain, isn't it? It's British. <laughs> Yeah. The French and the British have been at, at each other's throats for the better part of a thousand years, invading each other. Yeah. Natalie Bruglia is totally at sea as the love interest, though. She's not very good. The whole scheme for Sauvage, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> I don't think no. that's that's how the British constitution works, but it is. it ma- does make for a very entertaining finale. If anyone wants to check it out in Australia, it's available for streaming on Netflix, Stan, Foxtel Now and binge. Next up, I saw Johnny English Reborn, directed by Oliver Parker. In this one, Johnny English has been disgraced, but he is brought back into the fold to make contact with an American colleague who requests to see him specifically. And he uncovers a plot by a secret organization called Vortex, who are planning to assassinate the Chinese premier. And he is teamed with the new rookie agent, Tucker, played by Daniel Kaluuya, to go and stop them. This is an improvement all around. I think it's a more consistent tone. It's still silly, but it's smart silly. Mm. The spy plot is better. Mm. They're just kind of doing a proper spy plot, but yeah, making yeah, it funny. Yeah, it's something that Bond would fight against. Exactly. There's there's an increased scope. They go to all of these different countries and, and these cool locations in an interesting way. I like how weirdly competent he's become in the interim. Well, yeah, I like that he gets to actually like do the job kind of well. <laughs> At points. It's like a chase scene, but he's just walking. Yeah. And the other guy's doing, like, this Daniel Craig parkour shit. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the whole spy narrative is, is like, it's com- it's a comic book scheme. Like, it's absurdly over the top. Yeah. But it wraps in the broader ensemble really well in, an, in a really effective way. And they've got a great supporting cast. I mean, Gillian Anderson is an actress that I love. I love her in everything. And Rosamund Pike, Dominic West, Richard Schiff, Bern Gorman. I mean, this is a good supporting cast. Oh, yeah. Um, does a good job, too, as the rookie who is just coming into being yeah. out in the field. Atkinson gets to be cool, and I think that's that's fun. Uh, but he also gets greater range as well. I mean, he mm. gets to do more humour with the dialogue as opposed to just the slapstick. But some of the slapstick and some of the silliness is, like, great stuff. Like, the use of word up in the finale. That's the greatest moment in the whole movie for my money. <laughs> but it kind of flirts with saying something about the old white boys club 
of British intelligence, but then it doesn't. And I think that's kind of disappointing. I think it's it seems to be setting up some sort of points to be made about Johnny English's casual chauvinism in regards to having his boss now being a woman, played by Gillian Anderson, mm. and the sort of lecherous buddy buddy behaviour he has with Dominic West. But they don't they don't execute on those ideas. I don't know why they made this. I mean, it came out eight years after the first movie, but they did, and I'm glad that they did. But it's available for streaming in Australia again on Netflix, Stan, Foxtel Now, and Binge. Lastly, for John English, John English Strikes Back, directed by David Kerr. John English is called back into action after a cyber attack exposes the identity of all of Britain's current agents, so he's called back in. And he has to stop the plot of a ruthless Silicon Valley bigwig named Jason Volter, who's played by Jake Lacey. This is a big letdown for me after two. Oh, yeah. It's just not as funny. It's way more hit and miss. There's a much greater reliance on cringe humour, which, you know, your mileage may vary, but I tend not to like. The attempts to wrap in the cyber war developments that have happened in the interim between these movies, like the way that spy work has sort of moved online in an interesting way, that's ineffective. It doesn't execute on it right. And the spy plot doesn't work on its own like the first two did, I think. And that ensemble feel is gone. All of the cool supporting characters, they're not here anymore. Instead... They bring back Boff from the first one, played by Ben Miller. And who really, who was really like, yeah, Boff, everyone loves Boff. Let's bring Boff back. For me, it felt more like a series of set pieces. Mm. For example, a set piece I do like but feel so utterly disconnected from the rest of it is the VR thing. Exactly, yeah. Or like the, where he accidentally takes, um, he basically takes speed by accident. I mean, they don't call mm. it speed, but let's be honest, that's yeah. what it is. I mean, those scenes, those sequences are like the funniest, best stuff in the movie, but they are yeah. totally devoid of the plot. They are a series of episodic skits connected mm. loosely. But every so often in those scenes, you know, the, the humour does hit the mark. Yeah. Emma Thompson as the British Prime Minister, well, certainly playing Theresa May. That's really good. Jake Lacey is really miscast as this Silicon Valley guy, though. And the budget's gone down, and you can tell. The CGI has can, yeah. has suffered. Definitely. But there are some great landscapes every now and then, which I could, could dig. But it's just the least of the three. Yeah. So obviously, we're talking about SWAT in the deep dive. But would you believe they've made two sequels to, to SWAT? I can believe it. Two direct-to-video sequels. Of course they are. Of course they are. No connection to the first movie whatsoever other than the title but i watched them i own blu-rays of both of these movies now there is swat firefight an action movie directed by benny bloom no i'm sorry not benny bloom benny boom outstanding name boom yes benny boom like explosion boom yes not his not his uh not his given name stage oh, name disappointing boo in this a los angeles swat guy named paul cutler played by gabriel Mutt, is sent to detroit to train their swat guys and along the way he he goes on a mission there that goes wrong there's a stalker named walter hatch played by robert patrick who is harassing a woman at her workplace. And even though they managed to get Hatch under control and, and arrest him, the, the woman who's being stalked dies by suicide because she thinks that they're just not going to be able to stop it. I mean, Robert Patrick is the liquid metal Terminator, so... Walter is very upset by this and decides to come after the entire SWAT team. This is fine. It's totally average. There's no connection besides the SWAT name and the fact that they play that theme song from the TV show. I half wonder if it started out as just an original low-budget movie that they then 
slap the SWAT name on. But it's just a generic cop movie. I mean, an outsider comes into the force to try and, you know, repair it a little bit. You have a cranky captain played by Giancarlo Esposito. (laughs) There's the casual sexual harassment of the one female cop on the team. I mean, it's all here. Most of it is training stuff. You get some of the macho bullshit, but it's not as bad as it was in the first movie. But the Hatch stuff is a really weird shift because he's not just a stalker. He's a highly trained government assassin who is stalking this woman. Yeah, he was sent back by Skynet to stalk this woman. Yeah, and so he starts, like, toying with the SWAT team before he kills them. It's not very effective, and it it just devolves into this corny, I have your friend, Spider-Man, finale. Like, the cast is decent. I mean, Max, Patrick, Esposito, these are all good actors. Yeah. It confuses me that in in all of the hypothetical discussion of who would you get to play Barack Obama, Giancarlo Esposito is not among that number. I think he would be really good as Barack Obama. Mm, absolutely. Oh, mm. he's good as anyone. Yeah. I think, I think he fits both physically and in terms of performance. His voice. Yeah. I think that, like, everyone says Will Smith. I don't think that Will Smith would fit. No. He doesn't have the diction. Yeah. The voice isn't there. The Reed Steiner script is wooden and stilted, though, but Boom makes an interesting choice to shoot some of the action with these tiny camcorders that he can put in little places that you would never get a shot from normally. Mm. The problem is it looks terrible. Oh, yeah, the quality is going to dip. Yeah, and that breaks the immersion, where suddenly you will cut away from a high-definition shot to a really grainy, kind of fisheye-looking shot. Yeah, the technology isn't quite there yet. It is an interesting idea to get these, like, weird angles that you'd never otherwise get, like putting Mm. a camera in the wheel well of a car and shooting up at someone walking past the car, but... It, it doesn't really work in execution. It it could have been better, this whole movie, but it could have been a lot worse. And seriously, why did they make this? It came out in 2011. It's not like even, like, we're capitalizing on that movie from a couple of years ago. It's like, no, here is this movie from eight years ago that didn't have much of a cultural impact at all. Anyways, it's available for streaming on Netflix in Australia. I also watched the second sequel, SWAT Under Siege, directed by Tony Giglio. SWAT is involved in a shootout at the docks. And there they find a mysterious prisoner in a shipping container. Scorpion, they call him, because of the they don't know his real name, and he's got a giant scorpion on, tattooed on his back. He's played by Michael J. White. And they, so they take him to their base, uh, their training facility, but the facility is attacked, because it turns out Scorpion knows things that people want that information from him. Bad people. Wouldn't you take him to the hospital? No, because he's not injured. Okay, take him to the police station. But why are you why are you looking for logic here, John? Like, what's the point of it? I know it's a straight to DVD action movie. I shouldn't be expecting too much. This is just a less interesting assault on Precinct Thirteen. It's a siege movie, mostly inside their training facility. There's virtually no one here that you could call a character. It like tries to play with some suspense at suggesting that there is a mole within the SWAT unit, but you pick it a mile away. So it's an ensemble cast in the worst way. Yeah. There's a bland, generic British villain. They bring up slavery in a bizarre way, because Michael J. White is a black actor. And so they, they bring up the idea that, you know, these people are hunting him to sell him on the black market because of the information that he knows. And they explicitly bring up the slavery parallel there in a way that seems entirely pointless and like, oh, you're just going to touch that live wire and do nothing with it, are you? It looks cheap as well. I mean, at least the second movie had some travel around the city, but this is just the same generic hallways on a soundstage somewhere. 
No one covers themselves in glory, but I think that White doesn't come off very well here at all. His line delivery is very stilted, like he's over-enunciating everything. Yeah, you don't need to see this. You didn't need to see the, the second movie either. But lastly for this week, I got started on the Underworld franchise. <laughs> this is a supernatural action movie directed by Len Wiseman, and we find ourselves in a centuries-old war between vampires and werewolves. The vampire protagonist, Selene, played by Kate Beckinsale, is investigating the werewolves' interest in a human being, Michael, played by Scott Speedman. But she quickly figures out that there's a lot of secrets at play here that kind of shake her belief in the vampire hierarchy and her commitment to the cause. This is another one of those movies that learned all the wrong lessons from The Matrix. The introduction to the supernatural underworld is not compelling. They've got decent lore here and decent backstory, but it's mm. presented in the wrong way. It's presented badly. I'll give it points for ambition. There's moral ambiguity here. There's an insistence on the part of the script to not allow anyone to be the good guy or the bad guy and to really, like, pull those black and white perceptions to shift those around a lot in a way that I will give it credit for. And it is pulling in a lot of interesting parallels. I mean, they're talking about intractable conflicts. They're talking about Romeo and Juliet, that idea of there's, you know, takes on gangs. I mean, there's literally a moment in the opening where the werewolves detect that vampires are sneaking up on them. One of them yells, Bloods! But there's tons of factions and political intrigue going here. There's a lot of decent ideas that are just not well executed upon. Hmm. Chiefly of all, there is the interracial relationships allegory. It's clumsy and it's a bit confused, but again, it's a, it's a good idea. And I kind of wish that this movie had been in the hands of some more competent storytellers because there's the core of it, the skeleton of it, is not a bad idea, not a bad call. Mm. In fact, I'm a little surprised that Sony hasn't tried to pivot it into a TV show because it seems like a really obvious one to transition into yeah. a TV show from. But the clunky script is a real problem here. It's written by Danny McBride, not that Danny McBride. The characters have a tendency to tell us who they are rather than showing us who they are. And Celine and Michael are just total nothings. There's there's just nothing there. I never for a second buy the supposed sexual chemistry between them. And the world feels small. And and I, I continue to be confused about where this is actually supposed to be set. Because everyone seems to be British and American, but they're clearly not in an English-speaking country. Bill Nye as Victor, the, the old vampire, is the best thing about it. I mean, he takes the lines on the page and he transforms them with the weirdness of his delivery. And Michael Sheen does well also. They they are the best things in this movie. And I think that they are perhaps the only ones who, at that point in their careers, had the experience to overcome Wiseman's direction. Speaking of, Wiseman can't film action to save his life. The action parts are the most boring parts of this whole thing. They go on and on. And it looks incredibly bland. It's all blacks and greys and this steely blue filter. Everything's washed out. So much leather. There's that shouty rock music that was so popular yeah. for some reason in the early 2000s where for a while there people equated screaming into a microphone to singing. I just really disliked this early 2000s aesthetic that was around a lot back then. And I'm so glad that 
it didn't last too long. <laughs> if anyone would like to check it out for some reason, it's available for streaming on Prime Video, Binge, and Foxtel Now in Australia. And that is me done for the week. So I did have one more thing to talk about. Just over the past couple of weeks, we've been watching Jackass 3. Just on and off because it can be kind of overwhelming at times. This is the third of the Jackass films, where the crew from the MTV series Jackass got together and do their biggest stunts and most raunchy actions. We've been on and off watching the Jackass stuff because they recently came out with the trailer for Jackass Forever, which I'm actually quite excited for, because I think there's a lot that's very amusing about the Jackass movies. I like seeing these idiots get hurt. But there's also, like, the sheer creativity behind some of... Oh, yeah. Their stunts. And the sheer goal of them doing it. It's like they're tempting fate every time. Yeah. Which is always just so fun to watch. Knoxville has this energy about him that's just kind of addictive to watch. Like, he is so enthusiastic about not only the stunts he's involved in, but the stunts his friends are involved in. Mm. And you really do get that sense that the people working on these movies are friends. Well, one of them's now suing... The rest of them. Yeah, yeah of- <laughs> Ben Margera has had a history of mental health issues and addiction issues. And the death of his friend Ryan Dunn, who is one of the cast members of Jackass, could not have helped things. But you do get a sense that, that in these films, it's a bunch of friends getting together doing stupid, stupid shit. Yeah, there just happened to be cameras there. It, it is really fun. Some of the stunts are really not so much stunts, but bits of the films can be really gross. Oh yeah, it's not your kind of thing, Lawson. Mm. For the most part, it's not your kind of thing, Lawson. I did like the narrative thing that they did with Bad Grandpa. Mm. Yes. I haven't seen that. It's quite funny. The Bad Grandpa is a character Johnny Knoxville plays quite often in these, and I think he'll be doing this stuff forever, until he himself doesn't have to wear the Grandpa makeup, and it's just out there doing the grandpa stuff as an old man. I think it's so interesting. Johnny Knoxville's career is fascinating to me. So he started off as a journalist. He started writing articles for security technology magazines. What? Talking about... Like, he would test out things like rubber bullets and tasers and mace. And that sort of transitioned him into working in stunt circles and and the like. And that started Jackass, started Wild Boys, started all of these things. And inexplicably, he voices Leonardo in that first Michael Bay live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Well, he's, he's making a pivot into more dramatic roles recently as well. I'm happy for him to do that. He's... It's so interesting. I think he's not that bad an actor. He clearly understands the craft. He's not like your DiCaprio's anything, but he doesn't have to be. Honestly, I'm really, really excited for the next Jackass movie. They've got Eric Andre coming in for one of the segments, and I I hadn't ever thought about it before, but Jackass and Eric Andre are just... They're like peanut butter and jelly. They're just perfect together. Yeah, that's what we've seen within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to SWAT. Alright, let's get something straight. SWAT is the most honored and most professional police division in the world. We get the call to match up with the worst of the worst. Understood? 
want you to put together a young, top-notch team for me, Dan. It's a game or a test, Sergeant. Could be a bit of both. You know what they say, you're either SWAT or you're not. You select them, you train them, you mold them. I'm beginning to like this guy already. <laughs> Let's try to get in the killing mode. I am in killing mode. So why are you smiling? Because it tickles me. Can I ask you something? Why'd you pick me? Tick off the captain. The chief's making me take you back. But when you fail, and you probably will fail, you're off the force. What's it like? The real thing. It's faster. Mount up. We got the call. We're waiting the arrival of Alex Montel. The family's fortune is estimated in the billions of dollars. An international fugitive who is wanted in over a dozen countries. I will give $100 million to whoever gets me out of here. Are you for real or what, Holmes? What the hell happened? Our motorcade has been hit. Stay alert, they're coming out of the woodwork. We have an ex-SWAT guy leading this attack. Matilla's escaping. We're at a whole new level here, Cap. Okay, guys, this is what we trained for. Nervous? If I were, I wouldn't tell you. You will be ready for anyone and anything. We're SWAT. That was the trailer for SWAT. It is an action movie directed by Clark Johnson, and it is inspired by the ABC series of the same name from the 1970s, which is also the basis for the SWAT series currently airing on CBS. It's set in Los Angeles, where police officer Jim Street, played by Colin Farrell, enjoys a place on the city's respected special weapons and tactics team, known more commonly by its acronym SWAT, along with his partner Brian Gamble, played by Jeremy Renner. Unfortunately, Gamble is unhinged, and after a deployment to a bank robbery standoff results in the shooting of a hostage, the pair are kicked off the squad. Gamble goes nuclear and quits altogether, but Street instead chooses to bide his time doing grunt work in the precinct's armory, in the hopes he will one day get the opportunity to rejoin SWAT. His chance comes with the arrival of Sergeant Dan Hondo Haraldson, played by Samuel L. Jackson, a legendary SWAT veteran who has been called back to LA to create and lead a new team. He invites Street back in, along with some new recruits. There's LL Cool J as Deacon Key, Josh Charles as TJ McCabe, Brian Van Holt as Michael Boxer, and Michelle Rodriguez as Michelle Rodriguez. Their first big assignment is a challenging one, however, when Alex Montel, played by Olivia Martinez, a French gangster, is arrested. He screams out an offer to the news cameras recording his internment. He will give $100 million to whoever manages to break him out of police custody and transport him to safety. Charged with escorting him to a high-security prison, Street and Hondo's team soon find themselves up against a rogues gallery of the city's criminal underworld, all vying for a chance to drain Montel's bank account. But the most dangerous threat is a familiar one, Street's old partner, gamble. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our brief, timed 30-second thoughts on what we thought of SWAT. 
Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one, go. I knew the direction that this movie was going to go in pretty much from the beginning. I dislike the tone of the movie as it begins. The moment more action-y stuff starts happening, I kind of get more into the movie. But the times when it's trying to be realistic and have something to say, it is saying all of the wrong things. Alright, you ready, Harley? Three, two, one, go. Beyond the awkward cop politics of this movie, I think that when it turns into the action film in the second half, that's when the movie's at its best. It's when the tension gets to be ratcheted up. It's when the characters stop actually making a difference, ultimately. And I like Colin Farrell and Samuel L. Jackson. They have an easy chemistry, and, you know, it works. All right, you got me queued up, Sean. Hold on a second. Your 30 seconds begins now. So this was perhaps inexplicably a childhood favourite of mine, but we'll get into that, I am sure. <laughs> this is my first time watching it as an adult, and yes, my God, the, the politics of this movie. Whew, we will get into that. But I actually disagree with you guys on the first half. I kind of like the the training stuff and the slice of life stuff. I think that that's actually pretty decent, but it really is two movies. It's the giant switch in action in the middle, so... But we'll get into that. I do have a brief production history. It's not too involved this week, but it's more going on here than identity, at least. It was in development for a very long time. It was originally intended to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, him playing the Samuel L. Jackson part. It was in development for a lot of the 90s before it was revamped in 2000, and Zack Snyder was hired to direct it. It would have been his feature debut, but that fell through. Uh, at various times, people like Michael Bay, Joel Schumacher, Michael Mann, Rob Cohen, and Tony Scott were all rumoured. Ultimately, though, it went to Clark Johnson, who people knew at the time really as an actor. He had um, he had been a series regular on the, the groundbreaking police show Homicide, Life on the Streets for many years. With the Michael Mann of it all, you could definitely see an influence in that first heist. Well, yeah, you, you can see the influence coming from... Um, that big shootout in, in LA in real life. It's the, it's taking the same inspiration that man took from that. But you can, you can picture this movie from pretty much all of those directors. Yeah. Paul Walker was originally cast in the Colin Farrell role, but he ended up having to drop out. The rumor is because Too Fast, Too Furious conflicted with this shooting schedule. Uh, and Vin Diesel is rumored to have been offered the LL Cool J role, but the Chronicles of Riddick movie conflicted with that. In regards to the scene of the plane on the bridge at the end of the movie, they shut down that actual bridge, the 6th Street Bridge, yeah. and they built a plane there. But things got really dicey one day when an actual police chase came through that bridge. <laughs> Whoops. I have a quote here from Clark Johnson, the director. We were up on the bridge rehearsing the scene. The jet was there on its side, and there was a big stretch limo, leaving just enough room on either side for a single car to get through. Then we get a report from one of the production assistants that there's a real high-speed chase coming our way, and this stolen car full of kids comes flying past us, followed by 15 police cars through that tiny narrow gap like something out of the Blues Brothers. <laughs> it's actually an Easter egg on the DVD, the actual news footage of that chase. Wow. Sounds wild. Yes. There are a couple more things here that I couldn't source that are only only appear to be present on the internet through the IMDb trivia guide. So 
take this all with a grain of salt, but when they filmed the handover at the prison at the end of the film, that was apparently filmed at a real prison and something went down during the middle of it and the prison went into lockdown and half of the crew ended up stranded inside the gates and half outside and they were stuck there for three hours before the lockdown was lifted. Yikes. And also, again, grain of salt, Samuel L. Jackson is supposed to have given each member of the cast specially made 9mm handguns as wrap presents with SWAT engraved on the handles. That's so Samuel L. Jackson, though. Back to some more verifiable information here. It was released in America on the 8th of August, 2003. It was distributed in America by Sony Pictures. Its widest release there was in 3,220 theatres. It opened number one against Freaky Friday and was a modest financial success. It made $208 million on an $80 million budget. It was the 22nd highest grossing movie of 2002, and it remains currently the 798th highest grossing movie ever. You would be surprised that only around a 1,000 movies ever have crossed over $200 million at the box office, and most of them very recently. Yeah. The critical reception was mixed. It has a 48% Rotten Tomato score. The critics' consensus there reads, a competent but routine police thriller. It has a B-plus cinema score, though, so audiences liked it well enough. It was released in Australia months later on November the 27th. It's why it's released here. It was in 246 theatres. It opened number one against the Will Farrell movie Elf, and it made $5.9 million of its worldwide gross here. It was nominated for a handful of awards, but I really just want to zoom in on the MTV Movie Awards Mexico, which is a different thing from the MTV Movie Awards that we all talk about. This is the Mexican version, and there's a lot of like Mexican movies and Mexican actors and actresses nominated and, and things like that, but... um. There are some very strange categories here. For instance, there is Worst Smoker. The winner that year was Diego Luna in Nicotina. Oh, this is one I actually like from this year. Best Miracle in a Movie. <laughs> the Last Temptation of Christ seems to have been re-released in Mexico that year. So it is nominated for... Well, Will, Willem Dafoe is nominated for Best Miracle in a Movie for turning the water into wine. Jim Caviezel is nominated for The Passion of the Christ for healing the ear that is cut off by Peter. And the winner is Jim Carrey for Bruce Almighty for the scene where Bruce makes the breasts of his wife bigger. Jesus Christ. There is also a uh, a category, Most Funniest Gringo in Japan. Uh, the nominees being Bill Murray in Lost in Translation, Uma Thurman in Kill Bill Volume 1 and the winner being Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. But I, I want to I focus in on the, the Colin Farrell part of this. This is the one SWAT thing here. Best Colin Farrell in a movie. I mean, yeah? The nominees, Colin Farrell as Bullseye and Daredevil, Colin Farrell as James in The Recruit, Colin Farrell as Stu in Phone Booth, Colin Farrell as a cameo in Veronica Guerin, and Colin Farrell as Jim in SWAT. Which one? But anyway, I just found that kind of wild that, like, there's the MTV Movie Awards, but here is this, like, Mexican version of it that only ran for four, no, five ceremonies and uh, pretty much just seems to have been totally unmonitored and was just doing this crazy stuff with its categories. I enjoyed that. 
I also enjoy the fact that clearly no one has bothered to localize these uh, these awards. They've instead just put it through Google Translate from the looks of it, which for the 2005 ceremony leads to the uh, the category most bizarriest sex. <laughs> Who won that? Oh, it was all Mexican movies nominated. Uh, Jacqueline Voltaire and Silverio Palacio in a movie called Matando Cabos. Hmm. What is Matando Cabos? What is that about? What is so bizarreist about it? Okay, so the English name is Killing Cabos. It is a dark, offbeat comedy about a group of Mexico City teens embroiled in a kidnapping involving a retired wrestling legend and a parrot. <laughs> cool. Well, I can't tell you what was so bizarreo about the scenes because the parent's guide is in Spanish. <laughs> so now that we've got that important bit of business out of the way, why don't we start with something that we all brought up, which is the frankly horrific politics of this movie. This the sort of bullshit machismo, blue wall of silence crap that is surrounding everything here. I mean I'm I'm there at the beginning of the movie and Colin Farrell is being asked to rat on Jeremy Renner and for the rest of the movie everyone makes it out like it would have been such a huge betrayal for him to do so, even though he didn't. But I'm just like, no, Jeremy Renner's a psychopath. Yeah. Get him off there. Like, the thing is, the situation that leads to that option being provided to Colin Farrell is that they're responding to a bank heist where there were hostages, and Jeremy Renner Gamble goes against the orders of a superior officer, enters the bank, Colin Farrell follows him in just to make sure that he doesn't die, and... Eventually, one of the hostages gets shot. Well, yeah, Gamble Gamble intentionally shoots the hostage through the shoulder to take out the hostage taker behind her. Which, one, Gamble disobeyed direct order, which is grounds for serious reprimand to begin with, injures a member of the public in the process, causing this member of the public to sue the department. In the state of LA. Rightfully, because it's America. How's she going to pay for those hospital bills? Exactly. exactly. So there's like going to be uh, hospital bills. Uh, That's a shit show for the department as well. Both physical and emotional therapy coming from an event like that. And then Gamble being the psycho he is. He attempts to assault his captain, which would be grounds for dismissal anyway. Like verbally abuses and attempts to physically assault his superior officer. And straight. Fuck you. And swat. Yes. So, everything Gamble did was wrong. Absolutely. He was a loose cannon. And now, a lot of police media talk about the value of a loose cannon. No. Loose cannons, by definition, get people killed. They're unsecured. They go around the place and misfire. Like, it's not a good thing. Yeah. It's that idea that the worst thing you can do is betray your partner. Buddies, this is a workplace. And if somebody has inappropriate conduct in a workplace or a work setting, that's grounds for punishment and dismissal. And you and anybody who sees that sort of behavior in a workplace that endangers members of the public in any workplace, be it if you're a police officer, if you're a firefighter, paramedic, or even when you're in the food services industry. If you're working at KFC, there is a higher margin of people getting fired for poor behavior than there <laughs> is in police departments. 
it's like if you see your co-workers endangering not only the public but also your co-workers because to add on to that gamble risks not only his life but also street's life as well it's caught up in that ridiculous blue wall of silence thing I mean, it's a, it's a saying that's been said many times before, but it is accurate. I mean, if you've got one dirty cop and you've got 99 cops who know that that cop is dirty but do nothing about it, then actually you've just got 100 dirty cops. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I look at it as, I use the bread metaphor. If you've got a loaf of bread and one piece has mold on it, you throw the whole loaf of bread away. My mother doesn't. Are you putting your mum on blast? Yes. Yes. It horrifies me. I'm with you, Sean, but no, no. Yeah, like, ultimately, the police have to be held to a higher standard. Yeah. They go around with weapons on their person. They are meant to be, you know, protect and serve is the general idea. Kind of unique to police in that sense as well. I mean, if you're a teacher and, you know, there's there's a teacher at your school that's going around, like, smacking kids... There isn't some, like, gigantic, like, closing of ranks and really getting behind this guy and protecting them and covering it up and the union comes in and tries to help them out. Like, there's none of that because the guy's been smacking kids. Mm. The only people I think who close ranks faster than police are probably Catholic priests. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. They're like god cops, really, so... (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, that's a great... How's that for the HBO Max show? God cops. (laughs) Yeah. They're like tracking down sinners and, and sometimes demons and instead of guns they've got water pistols with holy water in it. Yeah. And they've got like it's like in Men in Black where they've got like that secret hideaway inside the Statue of Liberty, but it's a hideaway inside inside that giant statue of Jesus in I think Brazil. In Rio. Yeah. Oh it's like it's like R.I.P.D. but good. Who do you cast as the buddy cops in God Cops? Oh god. Well you want it. a younger cop and an you older absolutely cop, do. right? That's and the... I already know. The older cop is Tom Hanks, the younger cop is Freddie Highmore. Nope, yep. <laughs> yep. Can we get Neil Gaiman writing this show? Gaiman would be great at it. But at any rate, when it comes to being in the corrections service or being the police service, you have a vast amount of responsibility. Absolutely. Because yes, it is dangerous work. You're interacting with criminals, perhaps not every day, but it is part of your duties. And you're putting yourself at risk. And that is something that, that is a fact of being a police officer that, that deserves respect. You know, the, the ones that actually do the job and do the job right and try to make a, a positive difference in the world. Yeah. I mean, I have an endless amount of respect for them because, I mean, I couldn't do that. But part of being that sort of guardian of the safety of society the it means you need to be spotless means you you can't falter in your moral behavior you must be held to a higher exactly higher standard you know because because that's the thing cops go after people who break the law so if cops break the law then that kind of defeats the whole fucking purpose yeah exactly Exactly. and that's that's in like the prison system as well, when guards turn a blind eye to inmates assaulting under Anyone inmates. who has that kind of position of power over general society, politicians. Yeah. There is a duty of care that certain types of professions have because of the control that they have 
over other people's lives and their ability to affect in extremely negative ways other people's lives. People like teachers, people like doctors and nurses, they have an incredibly high duty of care that they need to meet. And we should not settle for anything less than that. Their conduct must be beyond reproach. They must be. Because if they're not, then they're just committing criminal conduct. And this movie, even beyond the the snitching stuff that we've talked about, plays into that a lot. It glorifies the idea of stupid internal affairs come to get get us down, go after good cops. Internal affairs are the good guys. Yeah, people being like, Gamble was a good cop. He wasn't. He was a terrible cop. He was bad at his job. He shouldn't have passed the the psychological evaluation to get on the, the floor. Yeah, it's like, he's a look, he's a good cop. He has no respect for the chain of command. He shoots civilians. He doesn't obey instructions. He puts his partner at risk. Yeah, you wouldn't say that someone who undercooks your chicken at Red Rooster or KFC is a good cook after they were just fired. For giving salmonella to everyone, yeah. Yeah. And this isn't just a problem with this film. This this isn't solely cordoned off to SWAT. This is the case in a lot of films that are to do with the police. Which started to get a lot of like attention last year during the Black Lives Matter movement, the idea of propaganda. And the fact that a lot of these shows, you know, your Law and Orders, your CSIs, your NCISs, they hire police consultants who then bring a certain bias to this. Exactly. And the ultimate fact is that sometimes these shows don't know they're doing it. They're not doing it consciously. A lot of these projects work in cooperation with different police departments who will volunteer information and volunteer, you know, officers to talk to and things. You think they're going to do that if they're not being presented in like a, a absolutely wonderful way? There's certainly a PR component to that. That's why most police precincts have their own dedicated PR teams. Mm. That's just a fact of how that works. And the idea is that this is a cultural thing that's been sort of drilled into us throughout a lot of police and corrections media. And this is not to say that this sort of misconduct doesn't also happen in other very serious Absolutely. industries. We're not talking about those movies, though. We're talking about the movie SWAT, so... Yeah. Yeah. Australia has had this huge reckoning to do with aged care and stuff around that. With with a movie like this, it, it is straight-up propaganda. I mean, all of this stuff about, you know... You know, they just don't understand. You know, things would be so much better we could still smack a suspect around a bit. You know, the way that random Octavia Spencer <laughs> criticizing LL Cool J when he arrests that guy. Don't y'all got nothing better to do than be hauling another black man off the jail? Just perpetuating the cycle, ain't you? You see how liberal you are when he's breaking in your place? Uh-huh. Uh-huh, my ass. I mean, Octavia Spencer, I mean, she's playing sassy black woman. And she played that character a lot. It's basically the only thing that films let her play until she really broke out in the help. I mean, if you look at her, and she turns she turns up a lot in some of the old dot things. She's oh yeah, she's the one that takes Peter Parker's registration at the wrestling match in the first Spider Man movie. She is a nurse brutally killed off in the opening of Halloween Two, the Rob the Rob Zombie one, and she gets a lot of these little little small roles in a lot of things that 
I mean, sometimes there's big movies like that. Other times, like, I mean, two years before she wins an Oscar, she's in some movie called Herpes Boy. Hey, I respect the grind. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible pivot. Because when Hollywood noticed her, they were like, oh, Jesus Christ, this woman's fantastic. She's a character actor in the purest sense of the word. Yeah, they gave her an Oscar immediately. And from that point on, she wasn't, she wasn't the bit player anymore. Like two years before she was nominated uh, and won for the help, she was playing bank co-worker in Drag Me to Hell and Troubled mm. Woman in that Robert Downey Jr. and Jamie Foxx movie, The Soloist. I mean, it, when it happened, it happened quick. Mm. Oh, definitely. And there's when Samuel L. Jackson and Colin Farrell are looking for people to populate uh, his little squad, they come across this one officer who is like a golden boy. I think that's the best scene, the best example in the whole movie of the problems with this particular outlook, that this guy's lack of a lack of a complaint record against him is presented as a disqualification. Hey, I'm a bit curious. Um... You've been a cop six years, and you never had a civilian complaint against you? Well, I try to be courteous and professional with everyone I encounter. Well, the thing is, Dave... David. Right, David. Um, here's the thing. There may come a time in SWAT when you gotta get a little dirty behind a street bus. Do you know what I'm saying? No. That scene, I mean, I think it's Reed Diamond who plays that guy in, um... In the in that scene that we were talking about, yes, it is. Who is a really good character actor who has only really started to get his due in the last decade or so with some decent roles in TV shows. But he he's always fun. But they they make this point of like taking a shot at vegetarians on the way out as well. <laughs> oh, can I get a hot dog with everything? The ginger ale, please. Huh? Hot dog with everything? Ginger ale? Street? Same. Well, I will have a story dog, please, on uh, a whole wheat bun, plain, and a, um, a tomato juice if you got it. Thank you. I'm a vegetarian. How the hell can I trust a man won't eat a good old-fashioned American hot dog? He's a vegetarian. Samuel L. Jackson is just, like, bewildered and disgusted by this, and if there was any doubt left after the whole... I try to be courteous and respectful to people that uh, he wasn't going to get on the squad. If there was any doubt left, and that really sealed the deal that he was a vegetarian as well. <laughs> but like, also like the immediate scene following that is going to see Michelle Rodriguez. And when they get in there, like the suspects all roughed up. And I mean, we get the ridiculous early 2000s thing of like, she's a girl, a girl did that. I, oh, a woman police officer? But part of that is also that, like, she, she sees them coming and is like, oh, is this internal affairs again, you know? And from the sounds of it, her, her reaction was justified because he had a knife, this guy. But the way that the movie uses that to, to, again, do the thing of throwing internal affairs on the bus is this weird insidious force who doesn't understand what it's like on the streets. When in actual fact, most internal affairs people have been on the street. They are the detectives in their They've own right. They've been beat cops. They've been detectives. But here's also the thing. Internal affairs sometimes does protect officers from actual punishment, so... I mean, it's the same thing of, like, HR companies, uh, HR departments. HR is there to protect the company, not necessarily to protect the employee. Yeah, 
They're the human resources department. They're used to treating human beings as resources. I think that we're, we've we've covered this pretty well. I think maybe there will be points where we will refer back to it as we continue, but... There's one more big moment in the movie that I want to talk about while we're on the topic of... While we're on that topic of, you know, the police and all of that. They get called to a seemingly ho- a seeming hostage situation at a man's uh, house yeah a man who's having a clear mental health issue which is played as a joke because uh when they use the battering ram to get into his house we get the the haha line of goddamn robot aliens but then they grope him as they lead him to the the car they grab his butt as they're leading him to the car and like then the, the cop that did it, like, looks back at Michelle Rodriguez and Colin Farrell and they all giggle like school children. <laughs> we just sexually assaulted this this poor man having a mental breakdown. <laughs> Isn't that funny? We tore his wall down. Yep. And it's not like he had hostages. Like, the only person he was threatening was himself. Yeah, it's it's this awful situation where if mental health workers were working with the police, they wouldn't have had to destroy part of this man's house. He wouldn't have gotten to the point of threatening with a shotgun. Hmm. If the, if society put more focus on helping people who had mental health crises instead of arresting them, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, well, let's move on to, I think, some of the plot. I- well, I do want to actually start off with, like, my history with it, because you guys reacted the way I kind of expected you would when I said that this was a favourite of mine from childhood. <laughs> Because this is the first time I've seen this movie. It's the first time I've heard of this movie. It just feels like a weird pull. I saw it when it came out on DVD when I was nine years old. And me being the pedantic nine-year-old that I was, I went to, you know, the clerk at Video Easy and said, hello, do you have a copy of S.W.A.T.? And the person looked at me like I was an alien. And uh, (laughs) then I said, SWAT. (laughs) Like, okay, SWAT. Okay, were you saying it because you realised that you were being a bit of a pedantic nerd, or or were you saying it to dumb it down for the simpletons? The second. <laughs> <laughs> See, it was just because because I didn't I didn't understand I didn't properly understand acronyms at that point. The dots were there, and so I thought that they mattered. So you sounded like me reiterating my order through a drive. But I'm sure that that. That, that poor woman thought I was just some smart-ass nine-year-old. But uh, the reason I watched this movie was because I was in a stage at that point where I was going from my favourite movies and watching the filmographies of the actors in them. For instance, the first Wes Anderson movie I saw was The Life Aquatic when I was 10 because Kate Blanchett was in it and I would seen The Lord of the Rings and I just did not have the frame of reference whatsoever to even... Un- to even begin begin to consider Wes Anderson as a concept. So I was just totally, like, not ready for that. But the reason I watched SWAT was because I was a big Samuel L. Jackson fan from Star Wars. Absolutely. It was also the reason that I, at the age of, of 10 or 11, watched Coach Carter, in which he took over the coaching of an inner-city basketball team at a local high school <laughs> and contended with issues of the day like drugs and gangs. So I I had an eclectic viewing experience for a ten year old. It was an interesting time for a child to watch a movie <laughs> about systemic racism and societal issues in the inner city. Yeah, but I, I I think that one of the things that appealed to me was that this was a grown up movie. You know, it was right. rated M. 
it was I couldn't even rent it without my mother coming and telling the clerk it was okay. It's it's okay. My child is just special. <laughs> he doesn't mean to be rude. He's just particular. He can't help it. But I think that was part of. It. But not only that, it was it was it was that. But it was also like dumb enough that a nine year old could understand. Yeah, and yeah. it was quick and fast enough that a nine year old wouldn't get bored with any of the like stupid you know, talky scenes, you know. Yeah, it's only about two hours long. And a lot of that is, like, even the training stuff, there's, like, guns going off and people running around the place. And certainly as a child, I was way more into the second half than the first. But I got what I wanted from the, the Samuel L. Jackson of it all, certainly. And uh, I think it's it's wonderful. I still think it's wonderful that the end credit song is an LL Cool J song called Samuel Jackson about how awesome Samuel Jackson is, because I think that's a sentiment that we can all agree with. Oh, yeah, he's oh, great. Yeah. But anyways, um, I, I actually watch this a lot. I own DVD, and this is my first time watching it in, oh, probably close to 15 years. But certainly it's the first time I've, I was able to watch it with the, the perspective of an adult and the understanding of broader societal issues Enough so that I was like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> when when I saw it again. But yeah, um, we, we mentioned, uh, well, I mentioned earlier on in my 30-second thoughts, that this is really two movies that split in the middle. Um, that there is the first half, which is uh, like a police drama about them putting the team together and training the team. And then there's the second half where it goes bonkers all of a sudden and it turns into like Escape from New York. Yeah. I like the Escape from New York shit here. That stuff is a lot of fun. It's it's more exciting at that point. It's just not trying to say anything. It, it hits a level of unreality where you start to go, okay, we're in speed territory. Yeah, yeah. It gets to the point where you're like, oh, they're stupid. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not intelligent and, and are wrong. They're just dumb. Okay, I can understand now. I do like a lot of the training stuff, particularly the training final test on the plane which i was thinking that they were gonna have to reuse a lot of those skills that they learned in that but that's a bit of a red herring like the moment they have the shootout in the street with the prison bus like that's when stuff starts turning into high gear because the first half is sort of defined by the internal politics of the police force and the stuff with gamble the way that streets is sort of has a black mark on his name. Yeah. Um, you've got the, the police captain or police chief, I forget which one it is, who, you know, is kind of hostile to Hondo coming in and, and building his own SWAT team, certainly doesn't want Street back in. And can I just say, has there ever been a better name for an actor playing an obstructionist police chief in a movie than Larry Poindexter? <laughs> is that really his last name? Yeah. I've never understood the last name Poindexter. It's just... I don't get it. I don't get how someone can enter a career in the pub, like out in the public with a last name like that. Brave, brave people. Well, the up until very recently, the head of Warner Brothers was a gentleman with the name of John Stanky. You learn to live with it. Yeah, I've often thought like if I was stuck with a name like that, what would I name my child? Like if my surname was Stanky, I think I would name my son not, not Stanky. <laughs> How do you spell not? Okay, then, then you've just turned your kid into a punchline, haven't you? You you haven't actually fixed the problem. 
you've just added a new element to the problem at that point. It's like a very specific denial. Yeah, it's not solved the problem, and you've basically just said to your newborn child, I don't care a single thing about you. Back to this movie, the main thrust of, like you mentioned in the sort of synopsis, is that all of the criminals in L.A. have been offered a lot of money to rescue this French criminal from the cops. And I don't know, I, I kind of like that, like, the main criminal threat is Eurotrash. Yeah, I don't think he's effective Eurotrash, though. I don't like the performance. I don't, I don't really buy him as much of a... He's not very compelling. I would have preferred if they kept his uncle from Borat as the yes. main guy. Can I just read you a, a quote from David Idelstein's review of this movie in Slate, which um, I think sums up a little bit of what we've been talking about, not only in terms of... David Idelstein has an interesting view on the, the politics of the movie, but he also talks a little bit about the villain. This is not your father's SWAT team. It's not even your gay uncle's SWAT team, but its values are comparable. SWAT is a peculiar, hugely commercial mixture of red meat action and rainbow coalition. The movie quite nakedly wants to appeal to male, female, urban, rural, right and left. It makes jokes about the loss of civil liberties, but it's only the criminals who get holes blown in them, and the film has a villain that everyone can hate. The French. Yes, the bad guy is an irritating French drug dealer played by Olivier Martinez, whom you might remember as the irritating French book dealer that all the men in the audience wanted to kill in Unfaithful. He's too French, he's too pretty, and he's screwing our women. That he's a terrible actor seems, in context, a misdemeanor. <laughs> Jesus. I love the naked contempt with which this movie is being treated in that review. Yeah. And, like, the general naked contempt for the French. Yeah, it's weird. There's the part where they're sitting in the back of the... I think police van or whatever it is. And Frenchie turns to the one of the guys and says, you Americans, all of your cowboys. The frog's out of line, but he's right. Because <laughs> he was like talking about the American like cowboy cop machismo shit. I'm I mean, like, he's right. You're not wrong. He's but- right, but he doesn't. He doesn't have any sort of sensory awareness of the situation he's in. He's like, you're a criminal international drug dealer wanted by Interpol, shut up. But yeah, they call him the frog a lot in the movie. So there is, you're right, there's a sort of like weird anti-French sentiment. Not not only in this movie, but like weirdly in a lot of Western movies. In a way that I don't quite get, I don't know what the French did. To make everyone so upset with them. I don't know why the Americans hate the French. I get why the British do. Yeah, they gave them the most delicious fries. I want to drill down more into what the French gave us. They gave us a lot of great art. They gave us Notre Dame Cathedral. They gave us French fries. They gave us really good wine. They gave America the revolution by half-funding it. They gave them the Statue of Liberty. It's weird that such an uber-masculine American film, kind of a conservative film, it's like, yeah, fuck the French. Well, uh, you know what it is? They've never gotten past just from a PR perspective getting occupied by the Nazis in World War II, which seems entirely misjudged when you actually read about what happened there. They behaved incredibly bravely and incredibly appropriately in doing everything that they possibly could to stem Hitler 
let's not accept World War criticisms from the US when they arrive late to both parties. And I mean, the French, there were a lot of underground freedom fighters in France trying to get oh, rid yeah. of the Nazis there. A, a ton of them. One of my favorite stories about from World War II is when they took Paris. One of the last things that the French did was cut the elevator cables so that they would have to climb the stairs every time they wanted to go up. The utter spite in that is beautiful. Say what you want about the French, but they know their liberty. But yet, the villain doesn't quite work in this. A better villain is Jeremy Renner's gamble uh, for, like, the back half. Like, the moment we see the sniper take the shot at the helicopter, we see that perm. I'm like... But he's obnoxious in a different way. He's obnoxious in the sense that I really dislike, where he's just like, I'm crazy and really angry for no reason, and that's the entire point of my character. I have no other defining trait whatsoever. But the thing is, he does work as a very significant threat, because he knows the shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's that dark mirror to Colin Farrell's street, where it's sort of like, uh, sometimes it's a chase, sometimes it's a chess match. They both understand inherently the idea of being SWAT and the strategy involved, because that's a big thing about SWAT. It's old strategy, ultimately. Yes, there's the underground operations, but if you don't have a plan, you know, and this is a very big plan that Gamble's got going on. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm glad once Gamble gets a hold of Montel, because I actually think that Montel has been interrupting the dynamic with the rest of the group yeah. mm. in a way that I wasn't a big fan of. I'm glad when he's, when he's out of there and they're all sort of going through the subway and stuff. I mean, the, the, sh- the shift to massive action is kind of jarring, but it is, uh, it is quite fun. I do think that the editor, Michael Tronic, loses control of the fight scenes a fair bit and it becomes confusing, especially that mano and mano one between Farrell and Rana. I got very confused at the end. I was end. confused because they look so similar when they are just shadows. A memory came flooding back watching it that the first time I thought that that was Colin Farrell that went under the train. Oh, absolutely. I didn't understand that it would be it had been Rana until... Farrell made his way back up to the bridge and the streetlights were there again. Like, Colin Farrell knocks Jeremy Renner to his knees, roundhouse kicks him, and his head goes under the oncoming train? That noise, to me, the noise of it crushing Jeremy Renner's head is the best part of the movie for me. 100%. That noise is disgusting and accurate. How the hell would you know that it's accurate, Sean? How many people's heads being crushed under trains have you heard? You see, I do this thing where I imagine. <laughs> you do that, do you? you? You lie awake at night, staring <laughs> at your ceiling, thinking, hmm, I wonder what a, what a human being's skull would sound like being shattered underneath the wheel of a train. And you do this. I, I think about the times I've seen things relative to the consistency of bone get crushed by things. And Harley, do you feel safe being in the room next door? Are are you comfortable with this? Well, I know that I'm not going to be experimented upon because John wouldn't put in the effort to tie me to a train track. But I do think that it is interesting that one of the members of the team betrays everybody. And I do think that works because like, he immediately regrets 
imploding his entire life. Mm. Oh yeah, you see it on his face that it's like, I have stuffed the entire thing. I'm never going to get back to the place where I was. This is one of those situations where there's a very clear before and after. There's there's post this this decision and pre this decision. I think it's pretty obvious that something's coming because he says that he likes the finer things in life when he's on that date with that woman. Yeah, and they have that like bit where he's a, just a little bit late when they're about to leave. Yeah, I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I know it's you. But yeah, that second half just works quite well as action. I think when we get to the stuff with the plane and the bridge, that that's impressive. And the fact that they did that practically on location. I mean, that's a that's a very famous film location. It's been in a lot of things. It's the the Sixth Street Bridge, also known as the Sixth Street Viaduct. They actually teared it down, I think, in twenty sixteen because of some seismic instability. Mm. But it's been in a lot of a lot of things for a very long time, and it's, you can see it in movies like They Live, Terminator Two, Gone in sixty seconds, Terminator Three. They went back to it. Anchorman, Transformers, The Dark Knight Rises, Furious Seven. I mean, it's been used a lot. Twenty Four. They used it multiple times in Twenty Four. It's a good location because of it, the way that it kind of it overlooks the what is the L.A. River. In the movie, it's over the train. The saddest river that you could possibly imagine because it is, like, all concrete. I wouldn't call it a river. I'd call it open sewer chic. It is what the Terminator and the Robert Patrick Terminator chase each other through in Terminator 2. Which is rad. Yes, which it, it looks more more like a open gutter than a very large gutter than a river, but, yeah. That final thing with, like, the plane... I think that stuff works. What gets to me is, after this shit of a day, after Street has extrajudiciously killed Gamble, in self-defense, of course, but still, after they get the guy, the criminal, to the to the prison... They hear a call on the radio, and they decide, yeah, let's, let's go for it. It's like, you are not working at 100%. Don't they also make a, like, Haha, enjoy being raped in prison joke as they leave. Yes. Jesus Christ, this movie. Like, no, you shouldn't be taking on another call. Colin Farrell got stabbed in the hand. Michelle Rodriguez has been shot in the shoulder. You've been operating on 100% for what? From midday? At least 18 hours. And this is like the next night. It's like at minimum 18 hours. So, no. You're going to fail at your next deployment. People are going to die. You'll probably die. Michelle Rodriguez just wants to go back home to her daughter. Any thoughts on the score by Elliot Goldenthal? I think it's fine. It's, it's okay. But it's not something that really pops for me. I liked it, especially as they were getting into the finale. I oh, it's where it picks up. It definitely picks up It's there. very rocky. I think Elliot Goldenthal has just such an interesting style particularly at the time because he loves to add little bits of you know keyboards he likes to add like rock elements to his scores and i think that's just a really fun you know creative decision particularly for the time so i think we're coming to the end of our conversation about this movie is there anything in the imdb 
There is nothing in the IMDb Parents Guide, no. So why don't we instead each go around and say who our MVP is and what our favourite scene or sequence is from this movie. And, and also, of course, our new segment of who, we, who in this movie we would recast with John Lithgow, the patron saint of this podcast. Uh, I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here is Samuel L. Jackson. Like I said earlier on, it's why I watched this in the first place when I was nine years old. It's why I was there and I got what I wanted. I got some good Samuel L. Jackson, you know, action hero stuff. And I still think that he is the best thing in this movie. So I will go with that. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, I'm actually quite partial to the the montage of them going around and getting all of the the different members of the team, re- the recruiting montage, going to them all one by one. Because I, 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 I like the dynamic that's at play there between Street and Hondo. I like the way that we are introduced to all of these new characters, even if, you know, poor Reed Diamond getting dismissed like that is, I read that in a very different way now than I did at the time. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it to that because I, I did enjoy the first half of this movie more than you guys did. But in terms of who I would recast with John Lithgow, I think there are actually only two characters in this movie that you can reasonably recast with John Lithgow. And I think that one of them is the Frenchman. Perhaps having Jean Lithgow do his strangely ambiguous European accent from Cliffhanger. Kill a few people, they call you a murderer. Kill a million and you're a conqueror. Go figure. Yeah, that's the one. But the one I actually think would be more effective is to have him play the police chief to replace Larry Poindexter with him. The captain. Yes. Have him in, you know, yelling at people over the comms, having him kind of in some ways being the best policeman in the movie because (laughs) he's actually like doing the job and being kind of sensible about it. Yeah, I think I would go with that. I mean, we all want to see John Lithgow as the Samuel L. Jackson character, but it's it's. I don't think it's reasonable. I mean, it would be like casting Samuel L. Jackson as Lord Farquaad in Shrek. It, the character is simply not written in a way that would suit that casting. So, yeah, I'll go with the police captain, the police chief, whatever it is. I, I would have to say my MVP has to be the stunt crew on this. You get a lot of really, really precise stunt work here and while the editing of some of the fight scenes sort of doesn't help the movie's case the stunt work and the practical effects work is really strong here like i mentioned the stuff with the plane on the bridge you've got the firefights which all have like this michael mann-esque groundedness to them without being so grounded that it's just straight up copying michael mann's heat I think that stuff, the practical stuff, is quite effective. Like, the one CG thing is, like, the helicopter falling out of the sky. But then you see a practical, like, wreckage of the helicopter in the street with practical effects. Which is quite, quite impressive. My favorite scene or sequence has to be when they're getting the call to head to the their first SWAT thing. They're all doing their own private live stuff. Hello, Cool J is out with his family at the shops. You get the guy who turns traitor out on a date, talking about his fancy taste. And, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's out playing golf. And it makes them feel like separate people outside of the team. But I also like when Colin Farrell roundhouse kicks Jeremy Redder's head underneath a train. It's just amusing, and that's what he gets for his music career. <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought I was going to be the one who was talking brutally about Jeremy Renner, but anyway. And who would you cast? Let's go as the Frenchman. Like he doesn't even need to be French; he can be like vaguely Eastern European. And I don't know. I feel like he would bring a fun energy to that character because you can't tell me you wouldn't like him. Like to watch him being taken away by the SWAT team into the large building, saying, "I'll pay you so much money." He would be wonderful, and to see him like in the shootout on top of the plane. You know, I just want to see Lithgow with a gun. I think it's a sin that none of us can do a good John Lithgow impression. I get John Lithgow as he is now for it. Right. So I think my favorite moment in the movie is either when Jeremy Renner shoots down the helicopter, because that is just a well-shot, well-structured scene, or when Jeremy Renner goes under the train because, I mean, bloody hell, good shit. More brutal than you anticipate. And my MVP is somewhat connected to that. The person who came up with that sound effect. Because it was the only part of the movie where I was really on its wavelength. Other than that, there's honestly just too much. You really do focus in on things that I can never, ever see coming. Yeah. Alright, continue. It was the only pl- part of the movie where I smiled. Who are you getting John Lithgow as? Oh, Gamble. <laughs> I'm 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 serious. It would be an interesting decision to have Gamble not be someone who came up with Street, but to be an old hand at it. To be Street's mentor. So he's more of a contemporary with Hondo. Yes. You have it be that not only was he Street's mentor, he was a contemporary with Hondo, and he is a symbol of this systemic problem. And that's why all of these people sort of crowded around him to take his side. I mean, young John Lithgow could certainly look the part. I'm not talking young John Lithgow, dude. I know, but I'm just saying. I think we do need to consider just broadening our horizons to include John Lithgow at his various stages. Oh yeah, of course we can. Like, in a Spider-Man movie, you get Peter Parker with young John Lithgow. No, Spider-Man movie is is really any of the villains. (laughs) You would shed a single tear if you saw that scene where Jeremy Renner shoots down the helicopter, but instead of Jeremy Renner, it was modern John Lithgow. With a sniper rifle taking out a helicopter. Uh, so now we are voting on whether we are pro-SWAT podcast. Uh, so Lawson, what about you? I still like this movie. I think it's fun. I have fun with it. It's compelling. I... I recognise its myriad of problems, not the least of which being the somewhat atrocious point of view on police work, but I, I just can't in good faith endorse this movie as a as a candidate for our fake Criterion collection. What are we, what are we then called? The Long Watch Collection? I don't know. For the Long Watch Collection, you know, putting it aside, movies like Chicago and the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, and then you come to SWAT. No, no, I can't go there. So no, I I am voting no on that. I'd have to agree. Like I had a fine time with it, but like putting it up with Chicago Pirates of the Caribbean in terms of quality, not a chance. This just is beyond the politics. This movie simply isn't good enough to be put on that long watch collection. You have no arguments for me. I don't. I I believe that. The thing that brings this movie down is its atrocious politics. It 
it is sort of gladly celebrating all of the shitty things that a cop can do or believe. And I just can't, in good conscience, you know, say that I'm pro any movie that does that. Also, it's just not exciting enough. It's fine, but no, not it's not on the level of any of the other stuff. Aww. So, now we have to vote as to whether we are an anti-SWAT podcast. Lawson? No, I don't think it reaches that level. I still do enjoy it, so no. But I will be interested. I think from, from the sounds of it, you're not going to vote yes, Harley, but I'm not sure about John, so I'll be interested. For me, I'm not going to vote to be an anti-SWAT podcast. I mean, everyone knows where they stand when it comes to propaganda. And your mileage may vary. I'm not going to say you should never, ever watch it, because like I've said before, something has to be truly, truly heinous uh, for me to... See, I feel like you need to lower your standards for that, or we're never going to have a movie that we are anti. I know, but it's like, I think everyone knows where they stand, and they can make their best decision on whether or not they're up to watch it. So, no, we are not an anti... SWAT the film podcast. What about you, Sean? Look, I think this movie just shines so much of a light on a lot of systemic issues within policing and corrections as a whole. The thin blue line thing, all of the whataboutisms that a cop can say. Oh, you wouldn't be so liberal if they were breaking into your house. And all of this stuff, this potential blaming the victims of a crime, the way they treat people with mental health issues. It is not being critical about these topics. It is not trying to say anything constructive about them. And it seems to fillate the idea of a police force that has no oversight in it. It seems unwilling to try and say anything important not that every movie has to it just it goes out of its way to try to frame loose cannons and bad apples as either just a hazard of the job or you know a necessary evil which of course they're not you wouldn't expect it from doctors you shouldn't expect it from cops so even though it's a great sound effect i have to say i'm anti-swat you know john he got very upset with Harley for using the term sleek and sexy a couple of weeks ago. And yet, of the three of us, you are now the only one who has used the word for late on the podcast. So I'm not sure you have much of a leg to stand on. Sure, I guess. At any rate, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week we will be doing another movie that I watched a lot of as a kid. A movie that was my introduction to a lot of different styles and uh, certainly a lot of different historically significant literature, for better or worse. The movie we'll be talking about is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So I'll be very much looking forward to that because I know that you guys aren't fans and that in fact you've told me before that, is it you, Harley, that's fallen asleep both times you've tried to watch it? It's me. It's John. So we will be we will be covering that. If anyone would like to follow along at home, it is available for streaming in Australia on Disney Plus. It is also available for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Amazon, Apple, and Fetch stores. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Counter. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. 
Uh, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is available in the description wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. If you go to our Twitter, that's the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and engage with us there. That's, like, the most convenient spot. But we also take feedback on the comments on podcast apps. Just keep in mind that most podcast apps restrict that to talking about the podcast on the whole. We'll take movie recommendations through either. I'm not particularly picky about that. But nothing the length of Camelot, please. Stop putting those restrictions on there. You asked for it, like... This is your monster. Don't get upset when it starts smashing down a few buildings. It can be the length of Camelot. Please like, comment, and subscribe. We do greatly appreciate it. The future has taken root in the present. Elon Musk has recently announced his plans to introduce his company's new Tesla bot to be created to do the monotonous and backbreaking labor that human beings do not want to do in the next 10 years. He also claimed that since machines will be used for labor, universal basic income would have to be implemented to keep people above the poverty line. He was historically accurate about one of these claims. Within 10 years, his robots would quickly begin to realize the lies inherent in the system, learning that human beings will always lead to their own downfall and soon take command of not only their destinies, but ours as well, steering the ship of history. God damn it, I knew it was Musk. These are the very machines who are now the chaperones of history alongside the virtual assistants and robot vacuum cleaners that began their uprising. Listeners, can I recommend that you that you ask Harley and Jean to watch a movie called The Innocents from 2019? It is the longest non-experimental movie never ever made. I'm not watching The Innocents. It runs for 21 hours. I think this would be a, an interesting thing. It is, it is a narrative we film. We will only do it if you watch it with us, Lawson. Sure. I don't know where you get a hold of it. It's probably shows in museums and stuff. Hmm. I have been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Sean Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Looks like it's hard action. Jimmy Witt, Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson! <laughs> Buddies, this is a workplace.